Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Jesus Is. We will be looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made. Here's Pastor Nick. Hey, good morning, everybody. Please open with me in your Bibles to Gospel of John chapter 8. Last Sunday, we started a new series called Jesus Is, in which we're looking at the seven I am statements that Jesus made that are recorded for us in the Gospel of John. So today we'll be continuing that in John chapter 8. Before we pray and get into our study, just a few words about Ukraine and what we were doing over there. I just want to say thank you for all of your generosity and giving to our Ukraine Relief Fund. Pastor Mike and I were over there. I just got back this week. Um, Mike's getting back next week. By God's grace, we were able to actually accomplish quite a lot. Um, We've already distributed over $30,000 worth of help to people who are doing really important work on the ground in both Hungary and in Ukraine itself. And there's so much more to be done. If you're curious about some of the things that we did, we recorded a video. It came out on Wednesday. It's on our YouTube channel. Make sure to check that out. There were some things that we did that we weren't really able to talk about in that video because they were still in process and kind of needed to be still kept on the down low. But now we are at a place where we can talk about them. So just so you know, there are are so many needs and also so many opportunities. And it's it's great that we have the money that we've had and we've been able to funnel it and we're going to keep doing that. If it's still on your heart to give, our Ukraine Relief Fund is still available and open and we're looking to continue just giving and supporting those who are doing God's work in Ukraine and also in the surrounding countries. But be praying for the situation because it's actually getting more dire right now. So yeah, be praying for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine, particularly the Christians and those seeking to reach out in love during this time. Uh, Well, with that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, thank you that you are the light of this world. Lord, we know that this world is full of darkness. Lord, we know that there is darkness that dwells not just outside of these walls in the world, but even, Lord, within our very hearts. And we ask that the light of your glory would shine in the dark places of this world, that it would shine in the dark places of our heart. Lord, that the darkness would be dispelled as your light takes root. And Lord, we pray that you would help us by enlightening the eyes of our hearts as we study your word today. Help us to understand and help us to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it was a Friday night, and it was in the middle of winter. I was meeting a friend at a pizza place before we uh, headed out on our adventure. And so when we met, it was already dark outside, but that didn't really matter because where we were going, it was going to be dark no matter what time of day it was. So we finished our pizza, and we drove up Highway 6 past Golden towards Idaho Springs up through a Clear Creek Canyon, and we pulled over at kind of an unmarked space, just a wide spot in the road. We pulled over, parked the car. My friend told me, don't bring your phone because it's not going to work where we're going anyway. And plus, you want to have your clothes be as tight as possible because some of the places we're going to have to squeeze into are pretty small. And he said, 
also, because it's winter, uh, you can just, even though it's winter, you can leave your coat in the car because where we're going, the temperature is always the same. And so we started out from the car. We climbed up the side of this hill in the dark with following no, there was no path that we were following, just kind of scrambling up the side of this mountain. And after a few minutes of climbing, we reached the place that we had been looking for, which was an opening in the mountain. It was a cave. And my friend asked me, he said, did you bring your headlamp? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, did you bring extra batteries? And I said, I did. And he said, good because if our headlamps go out, we're dead. And he wasn't joking, actually. You know that um, in this cave, sometimes we would be squeezing into tight places. But other times, we would be in big open places where there were crevasses, where if you fall down these things, who knows if you are going to get out or how you'll ever get out. Sometimes we would come to places where it forks, right? And so you can go left or right. And if you take the wrong turn, who knows what happens to you, right? And so without light, you would be dead, for real. Light, like food and water, is necessary for life. If the sun were to stop shining, life on earth would cease within a short amount of time. And this is why throughout human history, light and darkness have been powerful metaphors in every human culture. Right? Light has regularly been associated with goodness and life, whereas darkness is associated with evil and death. And if you think about it, it's even worked our way into our vernacular, the way that we talk, right? To know something or to understand something we say is to be enlightened, whereas to not know something or not understand something, we would say that you are in the dark. And that makes a lot of sense because if you think about what light does, what does it do? Well, light enables you to see things for how they really are, to see things for how they really are. On the other hand, darkness hides or obscures our vision. It prevents us from seeing things that are actually there, even though they are there. If you've ever tried to navigate your way through a dark room, maybe you've bumped into things, you trip over things. The reason is because there are things that are there, whether you can see them or not. And it's only when you turn on the lights that you can begin to see things for how they really are. You begin to understand and navigate your setting and your surroundings when the light comes in. So in the Bible, these metaphors of light and darkness are used. And in the Bible, God takes this metaphor and takes it even one giant step further where he says that actually God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. God is the one who in the book of Genesis spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light. God's people are called to live as children of the light and to shine like stars in the midst of the corruption of this world. Sin and Satan, on the other hand, we're told in the Bible, are of the darkness. Sinful actions are called deeds of darkness. And Jesus referred to hell as outer darkness. Jesus said that on our own, we are lost in darkness. But what happens is when God intervenes in someone's life, when God saves a person, he says that is when God calls you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And the Bible tells us that in heaven, there will actually be no night God will be our light and he will illuminate and shine forever. It's funny, I was talking to Pastor Mike last week. We were so exhausted in Hungary and, and into Ukraine, you know. We're so exhausted. And I was like, I can't believe this. I had to meet this guy at 2.30 in the morning to buy a van 
at a gas station, right? And I was like, Mike, I can't believe this. I got to preach in the morning, and then I got to preach in the afternoon right after this. And he said, don't worry about it, and we can sleep when we're in heaven. But I'm like, I don't think we can, bro, because it says there's no night. Like, it's just going to be bright, like, all the time. God will be our light. Well, listen, back in that cave, of course, we wanted to see how dark it really was. And so at one point, there in the heart of the mountain, we turned off our headlamps, and it was pure pitch darkness. It's actually a word for it. They call it cave darkness. It's a total absence of light. You can't see your hand in front of your face. You can actually feel the darkness. And that's the thing about darkness, right? What is it? It's the absence of light. Light, in other words, is an outside force. Without the intervention of this outside force of light, our default setting, our default scenario is darkness. The only way to break the darkness is by introducing light into that space. But once you do introduce light, wherever the light goes, darkness is always dispelled. Light, in other words, is always more powerful than darkness. If they were to fight and square off, mano y mano, darkness versus light, light will always win because wherever light shines, darkness is dispelled. It can't compete. And the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that into the darkness of this world, a light has come, and that light has a name. His name is Jesus. He is God come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The title of today's message is, Jesus is the light of the world. And what we're going to see in our passage today, every week I give you a sentence that serves as our outline and our summary. And I'd love it if you'd write it down, have it in your notes, take this thought with you as you go. Here it is for today. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that, we might, so that rather than dying in our sins, we might have the light of life. So we'll take that sentence and we'll look at each part of it as we study this passage. So first of all, Jesus is the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, here's what we read. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the second of seven statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, which begin with the words, I am, the I am statements. This is number two. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Be Set Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. 
Now that number seven is really important in John's gospel. The other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what we call the synoptic gospels. Now what a synoptic gospel means, it means a, a general view of the whole. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of approach Jesus' life like a biographer would, trying to give you a general overview of Jesus' life, Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' teaching. So you can kind of get the big picture of it. But John's gospel is different. And part of the reason for that is because John's gospel was the last of the four gospels to be written. And that's because John was the last of Jesus' 12 disciples who died. He lived the longest. And so for the early Christians, the apostle John was an important link for them back to Jesus. Because as he lived and as he got older, he was the last one who was alive, who still walked with Jesus, heard him speak, was there, saw the miracles. And so as John got older, probably by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, probably by the prompting of other people, they said, John, we need you to write down some of those things that you remember Jesus said and Jesus did that didn't make it into the other gospels. And so John, he approaches his gospel in a different way than the other gospel writers. Rather than giving us a general overview of Jesus's life and ministry, instead John focuses on some key moments. Sometimes he takes multiple chapters just to talk about something that happened in the course of one day or one evening. Right, so John focuses in on these events that took place, key moments in Jesus' life that give us insight into who Jesus was. And at the end of the book, John tells us what his logic is and what's his heart's motivation behind doing this. He says, look, there are many other things that Jesus said and did in the presence of his disciples, but I've chosen to tell you these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Rather than following a strict chronology of Jesus' life, John's gospel is instead structured around seven signs that Jesus performed and seven I am statements that Jesus made. Right? So seven signs and seven statements. And together, these seven signs and seven statements are given to us, shown to us, to reveal who Jesus is in such a way that if you approach it with an open heart and an open mind, you would be compelled to believe in him. Now this phrase, I am, that John tells us Jesus actually used repeatedly throughout his ministry, it's a particularly loaded phrase when it comes to the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. And I'll explain why that is in just a moment. But first, let's look at this statement and what it means. In order to understand what Jesus is saying and what it means when he says, I am the light of the world, you need to understand the setting in which this took place. And here's the setting. This took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, did you know that John's gospel from chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9, three chapters, they all talk about events which took place over the course of an eight-day festival. In fact, John 7, starting in verse 37 to the end of, verse, the end of chapter 9, that section actually covers events that all took place on one single day the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which, by the way, is also called, in some of your Bibles, the Feast of Booths. It's the same thing. It was, a, it was basically a really big party that would take place every year in either September or October. The date changed, of course, because they followed a lunar calendar, a moon-based calendar. We follow a solar calendar. And so 
it would take place at the same time on their calendar every year, but for us that falls sometimes in September, sometimes in October. And the instructions for this festival were given in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. And here's how it worked. During this festival, Everybody who could was encouraged to come up to Jerusalem. But even if you couldn't go to Jerusalem, everybody in Israel for this eight days, the Feast of Tabernacles, was told to move out of their houses, right? Like you live in a house, you're going to move into a tent. Right? Imagine if you moved out of your house and moved into a, a tent in your backyard. Well, that's what these people would do. Sometimes they build the, this kind of makeshift lodging on top of the roof of their house. They have flat roofed houses there. Sometimes it would be out in the courtyard of their place or in, in maybe a, a desolate place, a wide open place, but they would move out of their houses and for eight days they would live in tents. And the purpose of doing this was to remember how God had set them free from slavery in Egypt. And as the people of Israel, right, after God had set them free from slavery, they had lived in tents for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Now they did this, the reason they would try and do this, remember this every year, go live in tents for eight days, was on the one hand a reminder of the fact that their ancestors had done this, but more importantly, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to their people in the past. Because as the people of Israel were in the wilderness over the course of those 40 years, God miraculously provided for them and miraculously protected them. And one of the main ways that God miraculously provided for them over the course of those 40 years, was by providing them with water to drink. You can't go very long without having water to drink. And just imagine how scary it would have been to be walking through the desert with your children, with elderly people, and not knowing where or when or how you would get your next drink of water. Just imagine the little children complaining, right? Not understanding the situation and just complaining, I'm thirsty, when are we going to have a drink of water? The people of Israel, every time they set out from their camp to go to a new place, they had to fully entrust themselves to God, that God was going to lead them to a place where they would have a source of water to drink. And he did for 40 years, miraculously. It was amazing. But here's the thing. How did God lead them through the wilderness? It tells us in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers that God led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Up until a couple of years ago, uh, my wife and I, we used to drive back and forth to Southern California, where she's from. We used to drive back and forth a lot. Now we figured out that we can fly. I don't know why we didn't do that before. It's a lot faster, but uh, I guess more expensive. So we used to drive a lot, and we had this car. It's a 94 Acura Integra. I liked the car a lot, but it didn't have air conditioning. So whenever we would drive through the desert, especially in the summer, we'd always time our trip so that we'd go through the desert during the night when the temperature wouldn't be as high. So for the people of Israel, understand, as they're wandering in the desert over the course of these 40 years, first of all, if you've ever been in the desert, you know that if you see a cloud in the sky, it's sometimes like it's a big deal, right? There's not a lot of clouds in the sky in the desert. So you see a cloud in the sky, it's like, whoa, look, a cloud in the sky. I don't know if it would have given them shade or if it would have just been a marker for them to pursue and follow. But during the night when they would travel to stay out of the heat, God provided them with this fire, this light in the darkness, which would lead them where they needed to go. Now think about this. If they followed the light, 
God would lead them to the life-giving water, the life-giving food. Ultimately, he would lead them to the promised land. But if they didn't follow that light, if they decided instead to go a different course, to go their own way, then surely they would have perished in the wilderness. So over the course of this festival, this eight-day festival, the Feast of Tabernacles, the people would remember God's faithfulness to them in these ways by doing a couple of ritualistic acts, which kind of reminded them of God's faithfulness, helped them celebrate it. The first of these ritual acts was that every day during the feast or during the festival, a priest would bring like a golden pitcher, kind of like a golden bucket. And he would go and he would get water from the stream of Siloam, which flows underneath the Temple Mount. He would go and get water from that stream and he would bring it out to the courtyard of the temple where the people were gathered. And in a big show, he would pour that water out on the dry ground as a way of reminding the people that God always provided for them water to drink in the wilderness. But there was another thing they would also do. On the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would light four large candelabras. You can kind of think of this like the Olympic flame, right? How on the Olympic opening ceremony, you light the Olympic flame and it burns over the course of the entire Olympics and then at the end they put it out. Well, this was similar. They would light these four very large candelabras, which were located in part of the temple courtyard called the treasury. Now that's kind of important, so remember that for a little bit later on. So they would light these large candelabras, and Jewish writers tell us, traditions tell us, that these lights were so bright, so large, that as people were gathered there, camping in their tents throughout the city, at night you could see the light of these flames of these candelabras that were burning in the courtyard of the temple. Now, with those things in mind, I want you to look at what Jesus did at the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's go back to chapter 7, starting in verse 37, where we read about what happened on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says this, that when the time came for the ritual of pouring out the water in remembrance of how God provided for them in the wilderness, Jesus stood up and he declared, he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You know what the water was for Israel in the wilderness? That is what I have come to be for the souls of men and women today, Jesus said. Now, the other thing that would happen on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is like at the Olympic Games, right? They would extinguish those flames of the giant candelabras that had been burning for the entirety of the festival. And they had been burning. Where were they located? Again, in the part of the temple courtyard called the treasury. Now, at this point, we know on this day, as these lights are being extinguished, Jesus stood up and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And look where it says that that took place in verse 20. This took place in the treasury as he spoke in the temple. You see, that tells us a lot. It tells us that Jesus is standing in front of these candelabras that represent how God led them with a light in the darkness through the wilderness. And he's saying, I am the light that God has sent into the darkness to lead you through the wilderness of this life. You see, with each of these symbols, the water, the light, Jesus claimed that what had happened in Israel's history, they weren't only acts of miraculous grace, 
They were also things which foreshadowed who he would be and what he would do when he came. They were things that pointed to him. You see, what those things had done for Israel back in the day, the water and the light, on a physical level, Jesus had come to do those things now for men and women today on a spiritual level. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence. Jesus is the light of the world who came so that rather than dying in our sins, so that rather than dying in our sins. When Jesus made this statement that he is the light of the world, his opponents, the Pharisees, they understood exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And that's why they immediately said in verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You see, in the law of Moses, according to the Jewish law, the law of Moses, in order for a claim to be accepted legally, it had to be substantiated by two parties, two witnesses. So the Pharisees are seeking, in other words, to discredit Jesus on this legal basis. Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised through the prophets that one day he was going to send a person. And that person would be the Savior, not only of the Jewish people, but of the entire world. In the book of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah predicted that one day to the people who live in a land of deep darkness, that's you and me, right? We live in a dark world. He said to people who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. And that light, he tells us, is a person, the Messiah. And so when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he is on the one hand referring back to the pillar of fire that, through which God led his people through the wilderness, but he's also referring to Isaiah. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.